Welcome to episode 10 of the podcast of Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Chichiboy. Chapter 10, Christmas. At my father's house, Gigi's house, all is still. I raise my head and listen to the dark. Creak. Sheila, my black lab mix, snorts and flops over. Silence. I creep out of bed, slowly raising the covers and trying not to make a sound. Last Christmas, Mummy and Daddy were furious at being woken up at that ungodly hour. I tiptoe to the window and look outside. It's still dark. But isn't that just a hint of light way off through the trees there? What you doing? Shh! Don't wake Mummy and Daddy up. I won't, says Froze, and he jumps out of bed. Thud. Right over their basement bedroom. I roll my eyes. Want to see what's in our stockings? I don't tell Froze I'd stayed awake late enough to see if Santa Claus was really Mummy. I hug this new knowledge to myself. Yeah! We jump back onto our bunk beds, giggling and shushing each other, root around for our stockings, or rather the huge pillowcases buried under the blankets at the bottom of our beds, and eagerly dive into them. After the first squeals of delight and shushes, I slow down. I want to make it last, and breakfast is a long way off. We show each other what we got and play with the little toys. I'm hungry, so I eat my orange. After what seems like hours... We crawl down the stairs, carefully open the basement door, tiptoe across to our parents' bedroom door, poke our heads around, and watch two sleeping heads. Are you awake? We finally ask. Hmm? Froze shoves past me and jumps on their bed. I hear an oomph and take that as permission to join him. We prattle on about what Santa Claus brought us, our narrative full of and thens, until Mummy and Daddy sit up. Mummy lets us know it's not yet time for breakfast and orders us back to our rooms until she calls us. We groan. She relents and tells us that we can play in the living room, but quietly and don't wake the baby. We thunder back upstairs to eye the Christmas tree with its hill of gifts underneath. Meanwhile, across town, Judy's children are just waking up. Their father is the only parent in the house with them. They had hoped their mother would be back for Christmas, but she's still too sick. But that mound of gifts that had stood under the Christmas tree last night beckons them, and they stampede to the living room. They stop short. Their mouths open. No words come. The tree stands there, twinkling, decorated with baubles, bereft of the mound. They hurry into the kitchen and ask their dad, Where are the presents? A burglar came and stole them all. There's no Christmas this year. Miriam, eight years old like me, starts bawling. She cries out that he has to call the police. Did you call the police, Cindy asks? No, they're just cheap toys. You have to call the police. We gotta get our presents back. Nah, you don't need them. Call the police. Yeah, Dad, call the police, Julie echoes Cindy. All right, all right, Cliff says as he goes to the phone. He calls the police, or rather pretends to. Tells the story, hangs up and says, Are you happy now? The morning drags on until lunchtime when Cliff says to them, Now hurry up and eat. We're going to go see your mom. Their hearts sink. No Christmas? How will the police find them? Instead, they have to go to that yucky hospital. They flop down into their chairs and eat up. It doesn't matter what it is. It tastes like sawdust. 
Soon they're finished and getting ready to visit their mom. They pile into the car and sit morosely in the back, the older two bugging their dad about their stolen presents, Miriam sniffling. He drives them down the parkway to TGH and hurries them in, eager to stop the nattering. Come on, girls, he demands as they shuffle their feet behind him. He pushes them into their mom's room. She sings out, Merry Christmas, as they each kiss her hello, but they cannot smile. It's just too awful having no Christmas, and they tell her all about the burglar. As they're telling her their awful tale, they hear heavy footsteps behind them and turn to see their dad staggering in with suitcases. Open them, he tells the girls. They do as they're told. Gifts spill out. Their jaws drop. They look to their parents, who are grinning back at them like hyenas, and their eyes ask, Can we? Go on, open your presents, Judy says. Cliff sits down beside her and nods too. The girls dive in. They tear the gay wrappings and squeal over what they get. While they're occupied, Aunt Connie and Cliff's father and his wife enter, calling out, Merry Christmas! They find seats and watch the girls delight with Cliff and Judy. The two tell them all about how they had decided to play a joke on the girls. They had thought it would be a hoot to have the girls think that someone had stolen Christmas and then bring them to see Judy and surprise them with all the Christmas glitter. Judy relates how on Christmas Eve, after the children were in their warm beds, the sight of the tree twinkling promises of glee still in their heads. Cliff had packed up the gifts and stowed them in the car trunk. Cliff picks up the story and regales them with how the kids had nattered at him all the way down to the hospital because he told them their presents had been stolen. I said to them, it's only cheap toys. You don't need those. Well, it's lunchtime. We'll go see your mom instead. The looks they gave me. He rolls his eyes and they rollick with laughter. The girls interrupt to show off their gifts, being careful not to bump their mom in the process. Judy's heart bursts with such joy that she hardly notices the pain as they hug her. The horrors of the last few months fade. Her doctor, my father, meanwhile is enjoying this welcome day off, although he wishes he didn't have to be dragged out of bed quite so early. He heaves himself up and puts on his robe over his striped pajamas. Hurry up, Daddy, we encourage him. He picks up the pace and flops down on the Chesterfield in the living room. Mummy gets dressed because she has to make breakfast, waffles and bacon and lots of maple syrup. We're not allowed to open any of her gifts until we've eaten breakfast. Between bites, we crane our necks trying to peek through the doorway into the living room of her bungalow. But she keeps us firmly in our seats until the last plate is licked clean. Finally given permission to excuse ourselves, we jump off our chairs to race to the tree. We bounce with impatience until she allows us to open one present each. Then we have to wait for Grandma and Grandpa and Uncle to show up. Finally, finally, they're here. Everyone yells, Merry Christmas! Grandma busses us on the cheeks, Uncle puts their gifts under the tree, and they all array themselves on the blue brocade Chesterfield. Mummy plays Santa Claus, handing out our gifts one at a time. We take turns opening them and watching what the others get. But it's over too soon, and she's back in the kitchen roasting a turkey, mashing potatoes, and boiling vegetables, while we play with our new presents until the scent of the cooking and our rumbling stomachs rev up the excitement again. The noise and happiness of the day keeps flowing into the night for us. But for Cindy, Julie, and Miriam, Christmas with both their parents is over. Judy is fading fast. She tries to ignore her creeping fatigue and the clouds gathering in her mind and the burning in her side. She tries to focus more intently on her children, on their joy and talk. But eventually, she has no choice but to succumb. Cliff sees the blood draining from her face and her eyes drooping. 
He packs up the girls and gifts, and with goodbye kisses for her, they leave for the drive up north. Cliff is taking them up to the Kellys' farm to spend the holiday there. The farm sits next to the tailor's cottage, and the girls will have a grand time playing in the snowy fields with the other kids. But Cliff will come back to the city to keep Judy company during Christmas week. The rest of Judy's visitors leave shortly after Cliff and the children, saying they must get home before it gets too dark. Judy is alone. The room is quiet. Judy looks around and hears the diminishing sounds of the girl's laughter and the tenor of Cliff's voice. Sees the bright wrappings crushed in the garbage bin and remembers the girl's pretty dresses. But the smell of hospital and disinfectant and her own effluence, the squeak of nurses' shoes, and the greenness of the small room reassert themselves. It has been a good day. She falls asleep. You have been listening to Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible, podcast by the author Shireen Gigiboy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King Is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under instrumental music for film and video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Gigi Boy.